This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. If you read my August 2022 Eclectic Technology column in QST Magazine, you saw how I detailed my solution for accurate computer timekeeping when operating portable with digital modes such as FT8. In a nutshell, I purchased a cheap GPS receiver from Amazon, cost about $25, and plugged it into a USB port on my laptop. A piece of free software decoded the time information from the GPS satellites and used it to correct the time on my laptop. I spent a little time discussing the fact that the super-accurate atomic clocks aboard these satellites are excellent timekeeping resources. In fact, for many applications, GPS time has become the preferred standard. Of course, to take advantage of GPS time, your receiver must be able to pick up the signals from the satellites. In most instances, this isn't too challenging, but the signal strengths can vary depending on where the satellites are located. And what if you're indoors, or even underground, or in some other structure where you can't receive GPS signals? Well, Piroyuki Tanaka at the University of Tokyo has devised and tested a way to synchronize multiple devices so they can agree upon the same time, and his method makes use of cosmic rays from deep space. Appropriately enough, it's called Cosmic Time Synchronization, or CTS. The Cosmic Time Synchronizer works by synchronizing devices around cosmic ray events that are detected by those devices. This could bring accurate timing ability to any location, regardless of where it is. CTS works thanks to cosmic rays from deep space that strike the atmosphere about 15 kilometers up, give or take, creating showers of particles that come down to Earth, including things known as muons. These muons travel close to the speed of light, so they get to the ground almost immediately. Best of all, the muons easily penetrate water or rock, and they spread out as they travel to cover a few square kilometers of ground. Every cosmic ray event has a specific signature, so imagine a bunch of CTS detectors that pick up the muon shower from the same event. If these detectors can communicate with each other via perhaps an RF link or the internet, they can confer with one another compare the event's signature to make sure they all picked up the same one, and then synchronize their clocks accordingly to when the cosmic ray event took place. The ultra-high-energy cosmic ray strikes occur frequently enough, about a hundred times per hour over every square kilometer, for CTS devices to work together in real time. And unlike GPS signals, cosmic ray signatures can't be hacked, at least not by any known technology in the foreseeable future. Professor Tanaka said, quote, The principle is robust, and the technology, detectors, and timing electronics already exist, so we could implement this idea relatively quickly. Satellite-based time synchronization has so many blind spots at the poles, in mountainous regions, or underwater, for example, 
and CTS could fill these gaps and much more. The problem, as with any new technology, is one of adoption. Thomas Edison lit up Manhattan starting with a single light bulb. Perhaps we could take that approach starting with a city block and then a district and then eventually we'll synchronize the whole of Tokyo and beyond, unquote. The professor's optimism notwithstanding, I don't see this technology replacing GPS time synchronization any time in the near future. But CTS clearly has many advantages and considerable promise. As I've said several times before, I have a certain fascination with ongoing research into new ways to generate power. The more unusual, the better. And if I stumble across something interesting, I'm always happy to share it with you. This is one of these cases. Not long ago, I happened to see an announcement from the University of Arkansas to the effect that one of their teams of physicists had successfully developed a circuit that was capable of capturing graphene's thermal motion and converting it into an electric current. The findings were published in the journal Physical Review E, if you want to track them down. The paper's titled, Fluctuation-Induced Current from Freestanding Graphene. The bottom line is that freestanding graphene, that's a single layer of carbon atoms, ripples and buckles in a way that holds promise for energy harvesting. What's really eyebrow-raising about this, however, is that it refutes Dr. Richard Feynman's assertion that the thermal motion of atoms, known as Brownian motion, can't do work. But the University of Arkansas team found that at room temperature, the thermal motion of graphene does, in fact, induce an alternating current in a circuit. The team built their circuit with two diodes for converting AC into direct current. With the diodes in opposition, allowing the current to flow both ways, they provided separate paths through the circuit, producing a pulsing DC current that performs work, they said, on a load resistor. The team used a relatively new field of physics to prove the diodes increase the circuit's power, they say that the graphene and diode circuit shares a, what you might call a symbiotic relationship. Even though the thermal environment is performing work on the load resistor, the graphene and the circuit are at the same temperature, so heat doesn't flow between the two. That's an important distinction, because a temperature difference between the graphene and the circuit, in a circuit producing power, would contradict the second law of thermodynamics. The team also discovered that the relatively slow motion of graphene induces current in the circuit at low frequencies, which is important from a technological perspective because electronics function more efficiently at lower frequencies. The team's next objective is to determine if the DC current can be stored in a capacitor for later use. That's a goal that requires miniaturizing the circuit and putting it on a silicone wafer or chip. If millions of these tiny circuits could be built on, say, a 1mm by 1mm chip, they could serve as a low-power battery replacement. But there's a big if in all this. It's the if we've encountered before, right? This discovery has incredible potential if it can be scaled up. But can it? Well, I guess we'll find out. Do you want to hear something truly mind-bending? <laughs> okay. Start by considering all the blood vessels that are present in your body. All right? 
Doctors sometimes refer to this vast network of plumbing as your vasculature. Someone who took a punch to the nose might bleed pretty profusely because the nose is, what, very vascular, meaning that it contains many blood vessels. Still with me? Good. Keep the concept and the word vascular in mind as we move ahead here. Researchers at North Carolina State University and Santa Clara University have created and demonstrated a new vascular metamaterial that can be reconfigured to modify its thermal and electromagnetic properties in an instant. According to researcher Jason Patrick, and I'm quoting here, we drew inspiration from the network of tiny vessels found in living organisms and have incorporated such microvasculature into a structural epoxy reinforced with glass fibers, essentially vascularized fiberglass, unquote. The metamaterial is made using 3D printing technologies, and this allows engineers to create networks of tiny tubes in a variety of shapes and sizes. The microvasculature can be incorporated into a range of structural composites from fiberglass to carbon fiber and other high-strength materials. So, how might this work for RF applications? Well, I bet you're already ahead of me. The researchers infuse the vasculature with a room-temperature liquid metal alloy of gallium and indium. This allowed researchers to control the electromagnetic properties of the metamaterial by manipulating the microvessel architecture. Specifically, they controlled how the orientation and spacing of the conductive liquid metal controlled how the material filtered out specific electromagnetic waves. In other words, the RF reflective liquid metal could be routed through some tubes but not others, creating passive filters on the fly. Imagine an antenna made out of material that could shift its resonance from one frequency to another by just redirecting the liquid metal in its structure. They're apparently able to achieve this redirection almost instantly, although they didn't really quite explain how they did that. The researchers say the new metamaterial should be as cost-effective as other materials as it relies on readily available composite fabrication processes. In other words, they don't have to build new factory models to make this stuff. If you'd like to learn more, their research is published in a paper titled A Microvasculature-Based Multifunctional and Reconfigurable Metamaterial. And you'll find it in the journal Advanced Materials Technologies. One aspect of radio that I find particularly fascinating are the signals that appear at very low frequencies. How low? Well, our lowest frequency amateur radio band is at 2200 meters, or about 136 kilohertz. But I'm talking about much lower frequencies. So low that they make 2200 meters look like VHF by comparison. I mean around 10 kilohertz or less. These are the frequencies where you can pick up signals generated within our atmosphere and around the planet itself. The origins of these signals are not entirely understood, although some are clearly related to lightning, like these.
but there are other signals that are downright strange. These signals, for example, are known as tweaks. And for perhaps the pinnacle of strangeness, at least for me, there is the so-called Dawn Chorus. Scientists have been observing these signals for many years. In fact, NASA has a program known as INSPIRE that not only encourages citizens to listen to these atmospheric signals, they even sell a simple receiver kit called the VLF-3. The kit sells for about $132, shipping included, and you can order it from NASA at their INSPIRE webpage at www. The Inspire Project, that's one word, dot O-R-G. I'll put the link in the podcast description. The goal is to get as many people as possible to listen to these signals, and making a kit available is a pretty clever way to go about it. NASA also encourages listeners to submit forms to document their observations. So what you really have going on is a kind of citizen science program. The receiver design itself is straightforward. It offers tuning and volume controls, an audio output for headphones, and a fixed level output if you want to feed the audio to a recorder for later analysis. By just looking through the assembly manual, the VLF-3 looks like an easy enough kit for the beginner builder. There are no coils to wind and no surface mount components. It's probably a single evening project. Now, you would think you would need an enormous antenna to listen to such low-frequency signals, right? I mean, a half-wave dipole antenna would be on the order of 8 or 9 miles long, not something you'd set up in your backyard. However, these atmospheric signals are very powerful, so much so that the receiver is capable of good reception using just a telescopic whip antenna a few feet in length. Regardless of the type of antenna you're using, though, there is a catch. You must be about a mile away from any AC power lines. Otherwise, all you'll hear is a constant hum. In fact, in the assembly manual, they mention that the first receiver test is to simply connect an antenna inside your home. If you hear the hum, you know it's working. If you decide to give this a try, I'd recommend the Dawn Chorus as your first target. This phenomenon occurs almost always at dawn or shortly thereafter, so you'll need to get up early and take the receiver to the quietest place you can find, once again, at least a mile from the nearest power lines. The current belief is that the dawn chorus is generated by Doppler-shifted cyclotron reactions, where high-energy electrons are being injected into the Earth's inner magnetosphere, You'll hear the chorus most often when there is a geomagnetic storm raging. So during the next few years, conditions should be excellent. And with that, well, it's time to say goodbye. Not just for this podcast episode, but for the Eclectic Tech Podcast itself. I've been producing these episodes since February 2020, so it's been two and a half years. That's a pretty long run in the world of podcasts, and I've enjoyed every minute. 
I'm sure not every episode was spellbinding for you, but I'd like to think that maybe the podcasts perhaps sparked your interest enough to inspire you to explore ideas that you may not have otherwise considered. The Eclectic Tech Podcast Archives will still be available on the ARRL website at www.arrl.org forward slash eclectic. You'll find every episode there, including this one. So, take care, keep an open mind, and always keep exploring. 